sometimes we walk into a situation and maybe you've been in a scenario like this where uh, you're, you think you've kind of assessed what's going on, but uh, something happens and you realize, hmm, I didn't pick up on maybe everything that was happening here, and there's a little bit of an embarrassment. For example, there was a woman who was working in a men's clothing store, and a gentleman was there looking around and had some items to try on, and, and this is one of those clothing stores where the uh, the people that work there might offer a little bit of assistance, uh, whether you want it or not, right? And so uh, he had gone into the dressing room and had come out, and he was kind of looking in the mirror, and she comes up behind him. And uh, she, with great candor, she goes, no, 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 no. The, those jeans look horrible on you. Let me get you something else. And she immediately turns and walks away, and then she hears him say underneath his breast, underneath his breath, I was trying on the shirt. <laughs> so I guess he walked in there in horrible wardrobe choices. Obviously not a married man because his wife wouldn't have let him out of the house dressed that way, right? But, you know, it's not uncommon to, to misidentify a particular in a situation that you might be unfamiliar with. Sometimes we are we think we're very familiar with something, and, and we still miss a very important nuance, uh, something that is supposed to be set aside to uh, be a little bit different, and it's very important. It's not just something that we can just scoot aside. Well, there's probably not a verse in the Bible that is more familiar to the population than one of the verses that Pastor Stan read for us today. And that long uh, passage, which is a real-life account of Jesus talking to this man named Nicodemus, and yet he's this religious leader. He's supposed to know God's word. He's supposed to be able to point people to, to how to get to God, how to worship God, how to get to heaven. And he's got all kinds of questions. He, he, he knows that he doesn't have the full picture. And as Jesus just uses this idea of, of being born again, it really throws him for a loop right there. And he takes it very literally in a physical sense. And Jesus is like, no, you got to be born spiritually, you know, born of the water and the, and the uh, spirit. And so we come to that wonderful verse, John 3, 16. And let me just read that again, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, sometimes a verse like this is so well known, it might be tempting for someone like me as a preacher to think, you know, well, why preach on something like this? Everybody already knows this verse. But there is so much wealth spiritually, so much amazing truth in just this one little verse here. I thought it would be very appropriate for us just to take it apart little by little and appreciate it. Kind of like, you know, you have a, a precious gem. And, and you, you can look at it from, you know, a few feet away and say, oh, that's lovely. But what does a jeweler do? He pulls up that loop right on his eye and he's looking at it and he's able to see just how precious it is, every facet, what, you know, the lack of imperfections. And that's what we need to do with God's word. We need to be able to not just appreciate, oh, it's a, it's a familiar verse, it's a great verse. You know, it sounds so great to say it. 
But let's, let's take it apart. Let's put the loop on our eye if we can and look at it. Now, what's going on here is Jesus is speaking, but he mentions God. And some of you might be thinking, well, I thought Jesus is God. And you're right. Jesus is God. There is one God, and, and yet we know he exists in three unique persons. There is God the Son, which is Jesus. We also have God the Holy Spirit, but then there is God the Father. And so clearly as Jesus is speaking here, he is talking about God the Father here, even though the word Father is not inserted there. We know he's not talking about himself because he's going to refer to himself a little bit later in the verse. But what this verse is really all about, if I could summarize it, is God's remarkable love. Or we could say the Father, God the Father's remarkable love for us. This is what we've tried to communicate to the children all week long. You know, the word love has been so abused by our society, hasn't it? I mean, people can throw the word out love and not everybody means the same thing by it. So that's part of what we really want to talk about is what does God mean by love? But we need to appreciate several things. Remember I said it's kind of like uh, the nuances and looking through the jeweler's loop at this verse. And that jeweler's just like, wow, amazing. This is incredible. Well, what, do, what does God want us to appreciate in truth from this verse? Well, first of all, he wants us to appreciate the passion of the Father's love. Notice it didn't just say God loved, but God what? God so loved the world. You know, it's almost that explanation mark there, if you could. I mean, God in an amazing way loves. You know, the word love sometimes in our minds could be amorous, romantic. You know, boy has a crush on girl. And there's, a, there's an element in our usage of the word love where that's true. But, you know, that kind of love can be fickle, can it? Because people talk about falling into love, but unfortunately they also talk about falling out of love. And, and romance may change, right? Many of us in this room are married, and, you know, when you were dating, when you met the person that you're, you're, you're with or you're married to, you know, you can remember, I mean, you're just giddy, you know, when you're around them and stuff like that. And there's some days that you still feel that way. There's some days it's like, you know, I love you, but I'm not sure I like you right now, <laughs> right? So there is that element where the emotions change, and we all get that. But this is talking about some other kind of love, a more deeper love, if you would. For instance, the same word behind this word love in our English Bible talks about how Jesus said to his followers, Hey, you've heard it's told to you to, to love one another, but I'm going to tell you, you need to love your enemies. Whoa, that's tough. Sometimes it's hard loving people who are nice back to you. It's really hard to love someone who's out to get you, right? So that takes a lot of character. That takes a lot of intentionality. But that's the kind of love we're talking about here. The word love can also be used negatively, such as loving the wrong kinds of things. There was a group of people who showed off in their religion, but really didn't love God inside their hearts, and they were called Pharisees in the day of Jesus. And Jesus said about these people, hey, they love to have the priority seats in a feast. You know, that's, that's what they aspire for. So that's what they push for. 
Uh, that's what they're motivated by. And all those words have some element to what we sometimes think about loving. I mean, if, you, if you're passionate about something, you sort of push for that. You know, if you're into a sport, you push yourself to excel in that sport or a musical instrument. Had Jesus simply said, because God loved the world he gave, well, we would still have a verse explaining essentially the same truth that we already know. But by adding that little word, so, he's drawing our focus to the Father's love in a certain way. In other words, God so loved the world. While love is the same in kind when it's displayed from situation to situation, it may vary in degree or intensity. You know, maybe the, the, because of the circumstances, you're called upon to love more intentionally or to think about it more. We understand that. We have to do that with one another as human beings. Well, God is saying, you know, I want every human being to know that despite what's going on in your life, I love you unconditionally. That is an amazing thing, but with a passionate love, not just a putting up with us kind of love. The second thing we can appreciate from this verse is the need to appreciate the people of the Father's love. For God so loved who? The world, right? For God so loved the world. Well, who is the world? Well, the word world here, uh, the Greek word behind it is the word cosmos. And I only mention that because that may be somewhat of a familiar word because we use it a lot in our English language in other ways. Like if you talk about a big city with lots of people, we have a word that describes that as a cosmopolitan area, okay? And, and so here you have just this plethora of people that's being talked about here. Really, this is without exclusion. This is all humanity from beginning of time to end of time. So does that include everybody seated in this room here today? It does, doesn't it? You could insert yourself in this, and sometimes we like to do this, for God so loved Carl, or you could do this with your own name, or God so loved me, however you want to phrase that, because we're all part of that. And it's not just those who will eventually be saved and taken to heaven, but it is even those who ultimately will be sent to be punished in the lake of fire for all eternity. God loves them as well. You say, well, if God is a God of love, and I hear this sometimes, if God is a God of love, then why would he send anyone to hell? And the answer is, God is many things at the same time. He is also a righteous judge. And through what we're going to talk about today, you're going to see how God can be a righteous judge and also be a loving, caring, heavenly father, and there not be a conflict because of the way he supplies a solution. Now, he's not obligated to supply a solution, but he's going to. But the people, people are different, aren't they? We're not all the same. But specifically, the, what's being focused on here is the spiritual aspect, the hearts of people. So Jesus, trying to explain this to his followers another time in Matthew 13, said, let me tell you a story. And he describes the world like a field. In fact, he even explains that. You know, think about a field. Well, in the field, there's different plots of ground. Some are better than others. And the way the Israelites did their gardening back then is they would have little footpaths in between. 
And the way they sowed seed is they would have a big bag of seed and they would scatter it just open in the air and it would fall down. And some of that seed would fall where it's in, in good ground, but some of it would fall on the footpaths. Well, the birds would come and collect that and that seed would never do anything. Some of it would fall in an area where there was rocky soil and it would just lay on the top and it wouldn't go down. Some of it would go down in the ground, but there were thorns and weeds, and so it would be choked and it wouldn't provide anything. But there was always that element that provided a proper crop. And Jesus said, just like there's all different kinds of soils in the field, so there's all different kinds of hearts among the world of humanity. And so it is. But there's really only two broad categories in that field. There was the productive, it brought forth fruit, or the unproductive, it didn't bring forth fruit. And there's really only two kinds of people spiritually in the world. There are those that are productive spiritually, that come to God through Jesus Christ and are saved, and there are those that are unproductive. They're trying to maybe live a good life, a moral life, but they're not following God's word in doing so. And yet God says, I want to make a provision for everybody because everybody needs what I'm offering. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, we all don't measure up. Every one of us. Not, there's not a, one just person upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Some of us may have better days than others, but none of us reach God's measurement and his expectation of perfection. You think, wow, who can be perfect? Well, the Father's love is more remarkable when you contrast it with the extremity of his pure passion with the perversity of people. I mean, as bad as we are, God still loves us. Isn't that remarkable? Because we don't operate that way as human beings, typically. There comes a point where... You know, people get so bad in our lives, we're like, you know, I'm just done with you. I'm just done with you, you know. But God doesn't write us off. Matthew 5.46 says, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? In other words, that's easy. You know, someone loves you, kind, gives you gifts, compliments you, and you're like, well, I love that person. It's like, hey, they're easy to love, right? But he goes on to say, do not even the publicans the same. In other words, really bad people in the world, wicked people. I mean, you go up to, you know, a bad, wicked person and you start complimenting them and they, they're kind back to you. Yeah, that's easy. That's natural. What's tough? When someone is wicked, mean, angry, and then you're kind and loving back to them. And yet that's what God is to us. Even though we disappoint him over and over again, God is consistent and unswerving in his love towards us. We're motivated to love those whom we find unlovable because we have God telling us to do so. God commands us to love all people. It's not easy. How many of us would strive to love our enemies if, we, if it wasn't written in the Bible? It's like, God didn't say it, so I don't have to like you, I don't have to care for you. In fact, I can, I can harbor bitterness against you. But God has told us, to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. And many other verses like that in the Bible. But you know what? That's because we have authority. God said so. But now here's God. Folks, who is God's authority? 
Ever think about that? God doesn't have anyone over him, right? He's the top. No one is telling God, God, you need to love the world. So why is God loving the world? Because he's God. Aren't you glad that this is the kind of God that there is? We don't get to shape or custom design our God like we get to custom design everything else in our lives, you know. God is God. You know, he's like the potter and we're like the clay. He shapes us. We need to get that straight in our minds. And so, as bad as we are, as disappointing as we are to God, and let's confess it, we know ourselves, each of us, and we know, well, I had a pretty good day today, you know. Be honest, look at it, you know. Did you covet? You know, did you, did you, were you fearful? The Bible describes one category of people that get thrown into the lake of fire as the fearful, people that are maybe more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks, that kind of fear. And God says, that alone displeases me. And he's like, oh, wow, I thought I was doing pretty good because I hadn't broken so many of the Ten Commandments. Well, that's, that's true. But there's way more aspects to pleasing God than just those ten laws. And then when you start thinking, it's like, wow, I'm not as good of a person as I thought it was. And yet God loves you. God loves me. There's another thing we need to appreciate, and that is the practice of the Father. We said this love was passionate, but let's, let's go back to it because we get another action word here. It's the word gave. You know, affection or attraction are essentially pointless without action. If a man says he has faith and there's no works that go with it, that faith is like a corpse. You know, let's think about it. Some of us that have uh, relationships that we're in, whether you're married or whatever like that, or maybe you have children. Let's say your child comes up to you and say, Mommy, I love you. And then they run off. And you're like, I think I told them to clean their room. And you go, look, and it's, it's worse. It's worse than when you told them to clean it. And you're like, Johnny, come here. You know, I thought I told you to clean your room. You didn't obey. But I told you I love you. You know what you want to say to them? If you really love me, what? Yeah, obey me. Do what I asked you to do. It's pointless, right? In a marriage relationship, it's the same way. If the spouse just verbally says, I love you, and you do want to hear that, but they, they dismiss in action, you know? There, there's no caring in the activity. You know, helping out with chores around the house. Uh, you know, showing respect for one another. The words seem like lies after a while, don't they? You know, one person said, and I don't remember where it originated, you know, what you do speaks so loud, I can't hear what you say. And so, what is the practice of the Father? He gave. Something is going out from the Father. He gave. And so, love is more than attraction. Love is more about subtraction than attraction. And we would do well to learn this even for our human relationships, but let's understand what pure love really is about. In other words, what does it cost me? What is going out from me? You know, for my wife, if I want to show her love, I'm going to spend, hear the subtraction in that word, I'm going to spend time with her. I'm going to choose not to 
be narcissistic and selfish and say, well, I want to do this, you know. Uh, you know, I want to spend some time, you know, practicing my instrument, or I want to watch this, or I want to go golfing, or I want to, you know, I'm like, you know, Lord, you've given me a wonderful wife. How can I show her I love her? You know, maybe I'll take her out to dinner. Maybe I'll go shopping with her and help her run the errands. Maybe I'll, you know what? It's subtraction. Subtraction from what I want to do. Well, guess what? God is all about the outflow from him, isn't he? We have a God who amazingly has a way of serving us. And, and, and the blessings come to us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow is a, an ancient song we sometimes like to sing. It's flowing because it's going out from him. Now, it doesn't make God any less. But as you and I also learn, the more we serve and love in our service, really it comes back to bless us, doesn't it? There's a joy to that. There's a joy in serving and showing love that way. Love is most easily discernible when the one who loves lives in a sacrificial way. Paul, who was an apostle, went around preaching about Jesus in the early first century, right after Jesus ascended back to heaven. He went from place to place. And some people were very glad to hear him talk about Jesus and others weren't. And he said to one group of people in the town of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he said, and while I very gladly spend and be spent for you, in other words, I am, I am giving myself, going without sleep, changing my schedule around, being available to counsel and, and talk with you on a moment's space, whatever that looked like. He says, I am spending and being spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, there's the word, the less I be loved. And it's very tempting for us to say, I've given and I've given and I've had people come to me for counseling, you know, like marital counseling. It's like, Pastor, I've given and I've given and I've given, but I'm not getting back. And I'm like, true love doesn't expect anything back. It's great when it comes. And yes, that person, whoever it is, should love, but that's not your responsibility. And aren't you glad that God doesn't wait for us to give proper love back to him? Because you know what? We, we never measure up in what we give back in love to God. Not even close, folks. And yet God's love just gushes. It pours out to us in so many ways. Life itself, relationships. I mean, every good and perfect gift comes down from God ultimately. Well, I got a job that I'm working. Who gave you the ability to work that job? The mental intelligence, the physical ability, the opportunity affording itself. I hope you see it all comes from God. We have limited time and attention and energy and resources to expend on others, but God, who is limitless, he can just give and give and give. And so that is the practice. We can also appreciate the price of the Father's love. Remember, it, he doesn't become less God, but it did cost him something. Because it goes on to say he loved the world so much that he gave his what? Only begotten Son. The story is told, and, and I told this story this week to the children. I'm just going to summarize it for you. But there was a missionary who tried to witness to a Muslim man. And for many years, he kept trying to explain to him, you know, your forgiveness of your sins and heaven is a free gift. God gives it to you. He's provided the way 
through his son. All you have to do is by faith, trust, and receive it. Turn from your sin, realize that, you know, admit that you can't save yourself, and just by faith receive this wonderful gift. And the Muslim man said, I can't receive it. I can't, I can't accept that. Why? Heaven's so great, it should cost me something. And the story goes that eventually the son of the missionary and the son of this Muslim man who had become friends were swimming and diving for pearls, and the little lad who belonged to the Muslim man, he, he drowned in one of these dives. But before he did, he was able to secure a very precious pearl. And, and the man, after a grieving period, came to the missionary man and said, your son was such a good friend to my son, I want to give this pearl to you and your family as a token of appreciation because of how much love you showed to my son while he was alive. And the missionary man pulled out his wallet and tried to pay the man, and the man was immediately insulted by this. He's like, with such a valuable pearl, let me pay you for it. He says, you don't understand. My son gave his life so that this pearl could be here. There is nothing that you can pay from yourself that could come close to the value of this pearl. And the missionary looked at me and said, that's what I've been trying to tell you. The pearl is eternal life. The pearl is heaven. God the Father gave his only begotten son. He died on the cross for your sin. And by you thinking that you have to do good works and have to add to what Jesus did on the cross, that you have to do penance, that you have to do prayers, that you have to do church attendance, you have to do this in order to get to heaven is an insult to God the Father. Now, we do those things after we become children of God out of love because we are children of God, not in order to become children of God. But God had one son. This word begotten, sometimes we think of as the birth of Christ when he was in the manger. But there's an Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 2-7 that says, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, capital S, talking about the Son of God, this day have I begotten thee. Well, that doesn't really answer the question as to what day is being referred to there until we get to Acts chapter 13, verse 33, where it says in the preaching that's going on in that verse, God hath fulfilled the same unto us in that he hath raised up Jesus again. And he's referencing this verse in Psalm 2-7 when he says that. So when is Jesus begotten? When he was raised from the dead. He's the first fruits because Jesus rose from the dead. Guess what? Those that become sons of God, children of God, that receive Christ as their Savior, we shall raise also. We shall rise also. And so what a wonderful truth it is when you understand that the plan of salvation wasn't just Jesus dying on the cross, but that God would show his acceptance of his son's sacrifice by raising him up again three days later, just like the Bible prophesied that he would. Something else that we need to appreciate, and that is the participation with the Father's love. How do we participate? We believe. One thing that this amounts to is turning and trusting. There is something we have to do. Now, God's paid it all through his son. We can't pay the price for our sin, but just like someone bringing you a gift, you have to reach out and take it, right? 
And you have to relinquish, you have to stop trusting in what you have been trusting in. And the way I know I meet a true Christian is because they will say to me, there is nothing that I can do to get to heaven. It's not by my works. It's not by, you know, what I do in the church. It's not by sacraments. None of that. It's just the death of Christ as payment for my sin. And so I turn from all those false ideas, and I trust only in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe. And there's a lot of people in the world that know about Jesus. And they would say, I believe in Jesus. Well, guess what James says? You know and you, you believe in God? Well, that's pretty good. But even the devils believe in God. The demons believe in God. So there has to be more than just a head knowledge, right? There really has to be even more than a respect. Because even the demons respected Jesus Christ. They didn't like him. And they didn't love him. But they respected him for who he was. So what this idea of believing means is, I'm receiving, but as many as receive him, he gives the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Next, we have to appreciate the pardon. As you believe, everything changes for you now. You will not perish. You know what this means? Up to this point, everybody is in a condition of perishing. You say, I sure know that. I, you know, now that I'm getting a little older, this body isn't what it used to be. And, uh, and, I, and I feel, you know, that, you know, death is going to be coming someday. You know, I know I'm not going to live forever. This is not talking when it says perish just about physical death. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, that's great. And then he, and he goes on to explain this. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And understanding that passing from death to life is all fixed in that word condemnation. In other words, the day that God judges us for our spiritual condition. And everybody kind of thinks of it like a scale. Well, I hope my good outweighs my bad. And it's not like that. It's more like you have that pair of white pants and you get one little drop of gravy on it and someone in your family says, you better go change. You're like, you know, of all the square inches of fabric I have on here, there is like, you know, one millimeter by one millimeter here. It's like mostly good, like incredibly mostly good. But you know, God can't abide one bit of sin in those that are in heaven. I'll give you another illustration. Imagine that you have a nice big tall glass of water that you see poured out of, uh, you know, Dizani or some bottled water, and you know, oh, that's good water. And then I come along with a little vial and it says poison on it. I take the little dropper up, and you see one little drop, bing, into that water. I stir it up. And then I hand it to you. I'm like, take a drink. And you're like, I'll pass. I'm like, why? It's good water. It's poison in there. One little drop. I'll pass, right? How many sins does it take to make a person a sinner? One sin. How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? Once. And so we need pardon. We shall not perish. Can we do that for ourselves? How can a sinner pardon his own sin? But God the Father, who is that righteous judge that I was telling you about, 
He can forgive. Now, he doesn't just say, oh, we'll just forget about it. We'll just wave you through. I'm righteous. I demand that punishment happens. But you know what? Punishment did happen. Jesus Christ was punished. For something wrong he did, he didn't do anything wrong. Who was he being punished for? Me. You. Right? So that happened on the cross. Jesus died for your sin. So if you believe in him and trust in him, your sins are forgiven. You've been pardoned. And then lastly, we need to appreciate the prize. Not only do you not go to that horrible place called the lake of fire and hell, but God has a wonderful place for you. You have everlasting life. I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15. It says, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, talking about believers and those that abide in heaven. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, another reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. That sounds pretty spectacular to me. How about you? That's just one glimpse of heaven. You can go to John 14 and other places and learn much, much more. So not only does it really beat a place where you're being tormented in fire for all eternity, it's a place of spectacular enjoyment and pleasure. And the best part is the individual who all made it possible is there. He's the most prominent person. It's Jesus Christ. You know, I got to believe that if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the first thing we're going to want to do as his children is to run up to him and say, thank you. And just fall on his feet feeling unworthy even to look up at his face, tears streaming down our, our eyes, perhaps. And maybe that's why he'll wipe away those tears, because, you know, we're so unworthy to be there, but he has made us so. He's given us his righteousness. There was a man who came home from work to find his teenage daughter flipping through some family photos, albums, reminiscing, he asked her. Well, I like reveling in some of the memories, she said, and then, continued as moisture gathered in the corner of her eye. When I remember what great parents you and mom have been, it helps me want to be a better daughter. You know, as a child of God who was, I was saved as a young boy about 12 years old in something like vacation Bible school. That's probably why VBS is so precious to me as a pastor and love seeing the children hear the gospel and see them pray and receive Christ as their Savior, open their heart, really understanding, not just going through the motions. Because I can still remember as a 12-year-old boy, understanding that I was a sinner, that I had broken God's law, that I had angered God because of that, I had saddened God because of that, and yet to know that God provided a way of escape through His Son, and all I had to do was receive that gift. And even though I'm his child for many, many years, many decades since, I still deviate. I don't always do what I should. I don't always think what I should think. I don't always say what I should say. And yet as I go through the word of God 
and I reminisce, and I think back of God's blessings in my life, I think, what an amazing, loving, heavenly Father I have. And as I reminisce, it helps me want to be a better son. Not so that I can get into heaven. I know that Jesus paid it all. But so that I will live faithfully for him in the time that I have left here. So how about you, friend? Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I've never turned from all my efforts and trusted just in what Jesus has done on the cross for my sin. God's love is remarkable. I see that. I see it freshly today. I've kind of thought, well, I believe in Jesus, but I believe I, I have to do this in the church and I have to do sacraments or I have to give money or I have to, you know, be a kind person. And then God will look at that and say, yeah, you were okay. Come on in. No, you need to come to the place where you realize it's not by works of righteousness, which I have done. It's according to his mercy and his mercy alone that he saved us. And that is really the difference, folks, of whether you're truly saved today or not. It's not just about saying a prayer, although a prayer is part of it. You know, because with the mouth confession is made, but with the heart you believe unto righteousness, the Bible says. And so, friend, today, if you've never turned from all the wrong ways to the one right way of trusting in Jesus Christ, the good news is you can do that today. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? God, I don't want to manipulate anybody into anything, but I certainly want to give room for the Spirit of God to work in hearts. And so maybe today, you're here, you've heard the singing, you've seen the children minister, and you've heard the Word of God today, and God's Spirit has done a little bit of tugging, and you realize today, you know what? I'm not sure that I have really trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for my salvation. Pastor, you've mentioned several times about it's not about my good works, my good deeds, my church, all these other things. And I've kind of always thought that it's Jesus dying on the cross plus these things. But, but I understand today it's, that's an insult to God. I have to trust just in what Jesus did. And then once I really am saved in his child, then, then I, out of love and appreciation, sure, I want to do many of those things as a thank you and gratitude for making me his child, but not so that he will make me his child. But I don't know that I've ever realized that before. And the light has just turned on for me today. And, and so I believe I need to be saved today, truly, genuinely. I need to ask Jesus Christ to be my personal savior. And if you would like to do that, and you really mean it, I would like to offer up just a simple pattern prayer. But I would like you to really if you're going to pray this prayer right where you're seated, in your seat, in your mind, and in your heart, I'd like you to make sure you really mean it. Think about the words and make them your own and not just pray them because I'm asking you to. I only want you to do this if God's really working in your heart. But if God is working in your heart and you need to trust in Jesus alone today, you can pray something like this right in your seat right this very minute. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died for my sin. I know that I can do nothing to earn your forgiveness. But trust 
in you. I now turn from everything else and trust just in Jesus' sacrifice and receive you as my Lord and Savior. Now, if you prayed something like that in your heart and mind and you meant it, the Bible says you're born again. 